Welcome to episode three of Unlocking California Politics. My name is Sanjay Wagley. I'm the Senior Vice President for Governmental Affairs with the California Association of Realtors. Today, I have with me Joel Singer, the CEO of the California Association of Realtors, who has held that top position for the past 30 years, um, overseeing CAR's dramatic growth in business development, membership, and uh, the political sphere of our organization as well. Um, I could go on with all the achievements, <laughs> but that would uh, take up most of the time of this podcast. So I will just leave it at that, that he has had an extraordinary influence on California real estate and in particular, um, anticipating the importance of the internet and the electronic transaction. But he will be uh, leaving at the end of this year. And today we are hoping to get his insights uh, based on his many years with our association. Uh, welcome, Joel. Thank you, Sanjay. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, Joel, I'm going to go ahead and start off with a discussion of something which is on everybody's mind these days, which is housing. When you started working for the association many, many years ago, uh, you started off as an economist, and California still captured the imagination of middle-class people across this country and around the world. Um, in part as an affordable, amazing place to live. Now middle-class people are actually leaving California in large part because of housing prices. How did we end up in this situation where so much of California home ownership seems unachievable for middle-class people? You know, Sanjay, this has been a troubling but consistent pattern in California. Um, California was actually more affordable than the nation as a whole in, in the mid-1970s. Um, but since then, California housing affordability relative to the nation as a whole has, um, you know, transformed itself where California is, is an environment where really only the wealthy can purchase homes. And as a result, our homeownership rate in California is, is a good 10 points below the national average, if not even more. And there's lots of reasons for it, um, but the, the reason that really doesn't explained it is that there isn't enough land. I hear this, oh, we're built out. That's not what it is. It's a policy um, set of dilemmas that have caused California housing to be so unaffordable. Um, first and foremost is, is just the regulation and the cost of, develop, of development. Um, it's the permitting process, the length in which it takes us to go from raw land to a completed home um, but in general, it's just the desire to really restrict housing more than anything else. And that has consistently increased prices relative to what they need to be. And as a result, in 2020 and 2019, we saw the first declines in California population in at least 120 years. It's quite shocking. What do you, what do you think is behind resistance to building? Well, there's lots of reasons. Um, you know, uh, one is, is, is the obvious, I think, and, and, and reasonable consideration. Um, we haven't built enough infrastructure in some ways, and transportation is so difficult that people view it as, as creating more traffic, first and foremost. But it's more than that. Um, California has such a high-cost structure um, that it's also an attempt to uh, recoup the costs of, of uh, the regulatory environment, and more so. Um, there's fiscal constraints as well. And all of that has, has led to a situation where both public policy and public attitudes 
have been basically anti-housing, anti-growth of any kind, really. Do you think this uh, trajectory we're on or seem to be on is reversible? I'd like to say yes. And I, the problem is I've thought that for most of my career and I've been proven wrong. Um, I do think um, their concerns at the moment about housing are so dramatic that I think there is a, a question now. And we've seen some, some substantial legislative action that um, should lead to more housing. But my concern uh, remains that it's too little too late. So do you see California meeting this challenge? It sounds like you're somewhat pessimistic. Yeah, I, you know, I'd like to be optimistic. I really would. And I'm optimistic about a lot of things in the state. But our housing needs are, are roughly 160, 165,000 units a year. That's just based on virtually no population growth, but um, you know, the displacement of housing as it, as it ages. Um, we haven't achieved that for so long that it's hard to be optimistic that it's going to loosen in any meaningful way. Um, but it can, and, and there's certain positive steps that can occur. We've seen some of those, but I have to, I have to think that there's gotta, there's gotta be more of a public commitment to housing. People really have to understand um, what housing means. And, and, and maybe it comes in a negative way. They understand what, what housing means in, a, in the context of lesser economic growth, their children moving to other states, and the negative impact of not constructing housing. Um, that may be the way we learn the lesson that um, turns this around and creates an atmosphere where you can at least build to your minimum needs, um, let alone catch up with what you've failed to build over the last couple of decades. Thanks, Joel. I'm gonna shift uh, direction a bit to talk about the real estate industry. The real estate industry has had a traditional structure of individual brokerages with salespersons representing clients, periodically faces various other models that uh, seem to come and actually usually go. Uh, this seems to be feel a little different these days. And so I wanna talk to you a bit about iBuyers, which are now a growing part of the landscape. I say this, of course, and now Zillow has <laughs> pulled out of the iBuyer uh, segment of the market, but what do you think about iBuyers in general as a force in the industry? Well, I, I, I think the Zillow example is, is probably more about a failure to execute um, than a complete failure of the, of the concept of iBuying, because I do think iBuying will have some meaningful, not overwhelming, but meaningful role uh, in the spectrum of alternative ways to transact real estate. Um, it's very convenient. It does produce a return. Um, the notion of, of paying more for a convenient, certain transaction, it's probably the certainty that is even more important than anything else, um, suggests to me that they're going to have, for, in those instances where people have a real reason um, to have that certainty, they have a, a, a home that uh, you know they have in mind, they um, have other needs to, to move the property quickly, that there will be an op, uh, that kind of market. But um, I never saw it as a dominant market. And um, I think uh, Zillow has proven that um, in a very competitive environment, um, when your focus is on market share rather than economic reality, you can get into trouble and you can get in quite, quite deep trouble quite quickly as they did over the course of the last couple of three quarters. So I don't know that that bespeaks really 
um, where the market's going, because I do think there's going to be lots of other alternatives, some which are somewhat similar to iBuying, that are going to have a role. The ability um, to get a, a less costly and a more, um, more realistic type of bridge loan, which some of the, you know, we're seeing with several other companies that are entering the marketplace, the ability to, to buy with limited equity, all those types of things to me suggest that there are going to be different uh, mechanisms of, of brokering homes that are going to have some market share, but by and large, um, we're still going to see traditional brokerage as, as far and away the most dominant. Do you think these other models can pro provide the same degree of consumer protection as the traditional model? Well, they, they don't at the moment, um, but in some instances, that lack of consumer protection um, actually may be lack of protecting the investors in some of these companies. Um, you know, I, I actually, my experience with iBuying, um, which is just experimental, so to speak, um, suggests that um, the competition among these incredibly well-capitalized forms, uh, firms rather, uh, Zillow being one of them and, and Open Door and, and several others led to a, a competition that worked to consumers' advantage. They basically got overpaid in certain markets. And I experienced that uh, just looking at what the impact was in, in some properties uh, that I uh, dealt with in Texas and Phoenix. Uh, the um, iBuying drove up the price more than it otherwise would. Um, and I think the consequences, as we've seen, have probably been much more severe for shareholders than they have been for consumers. But in the long run, uh, these areas do need to be regulated. And they need to be regulated to at least the same extent um, as the uh, current brokerage industry, because the, the possibilities of abuse are probably even greater in these areas as well. And I think there's other concerns too in the iBuying and other spheres um, that only get discovered as, as, as they you know, exist for some period of, of time and, and consumers can compare them to other methods of exchange. Okay, thanks, Phil. Um, CAR and frankly, you <laughs> have been uh, very responsible for uh, the rapid technological change that the real estate industry has seen um, in, the, in the past, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years, um, especially again, electronic transactions, the internet. Are there any other disruptions or technological innovations beyond iBuying, which we've talked about, that you see on the horizon or that you would be watchful for um, in the industry? Um, you know, <laughs> there always are. Somewhere in some garage, you know, some gr teenage girls are coming up with something that we'll, we've never even thought about that will have immediate impact and, a, and an important impact on, on this industry or other industries. But I do think um, a lot of what we're going to see in technology is going to be further refinement of things we're just starting to see now or that are in place but are not normal. Um, and, you know, a lot has been accelerated by, by the pandemic, quite frankly. Um, the transaction is still not a virtual transaction for most people, but the ability to do a virtual transaction is just about in grasp. And the most interesting part of that from my perspective is that the contract to close portion is what takes the longest time. Some of that is because people want it. You know, they have to decide where they're going to go. They have to purchase another home. But a lot of it has to do with that mortgage origination aspect. And that aspect in particular, um, you know, still 
defies the imagination in terms of technology. And there's a lot of room for improvement in that process, much more so, I think, than in, in most other parts of the transaction. And I, we're starting to see that. I think there's a lot of fintech evolution that's going to occur. Um, the mortgage process is so painful that uh, people don't want to go through it, even when it's in their best interest to go through it often in terms of refinancing and so on. Um, a lot of that, I think, gets solved over the next few years by the fact that so much data for better and for worse is available. And so I see that being automated in, in a meaningful way. But I also see on the realtor side um, and, and, and taking care of that part and, and getting more predictability in the mortgage part is probably the best thing that can happen for realtors, quite frankly. That's where they have to invest all their time, reassuring their customer or going to alternatives because at the last moment, the, the mortgage you know, made unrealistic, the mortgagee made unrealistic demands about what materials need to be produced and so on. So I do think that's hugely important for, for our members and for licensees. But I also think there's a lot of productivity tools that will work to the advantage of our members over time. Um, you know, we've seen with virtual showings, we've seen the ability of the consumer just simply to have a much better in-depth understanding of not only the property they're looking at, but all the attributes that, that go into a buy-sell decision. All of that, I think, accelerates. And as a result, I think the industry uh, becomes more productive in, in, in a way that, um, you know, creates a better consumer experience. Thanks, Joel. It's interesting you talked about the financial side. I recently refinanced and uh, I don't know what I consented to, of course, but um, in the course I was normally used to, so I said, do you need this verification? proof?" They're like, uh, no, we've got it all. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I don't need to submit anything. No, we've pulled up everything. I'm like, oh, good, good, good to know. But it was still a little uh, disturbing, too, at the same time. Yeah, and it's going to be that trade-off between, you know, the data avail availability and personal privacy that brings certain benefits with it, but also has enormous risk, right? And, right. Um, yeah, it was just kind token, of eerie. <laughs> but by the same token, um, compared to the paper shuffle that it used to be, where you have to provide all your verifications of employment, of income, of savings, uh, you know, your rental receipts, if you own an investment property, all of that coming in a manual way um, is, is unnecessary and shouldn't be the, the case. It still is way too often today. Right. Um, so moving on to politics, the, the main core of this podcast, California in the time, again, you've been CEO and obviously in the time you've lived here has changed dramatically, both dem demo uh, demographically and politically. In addition, there's been an effective shift to the state being a much more uh, a state being dominated by the Democratic Party. We also live in a state and a nation which has become very polarized. Um, the Realtor Party is a concept that we use to orient um, our political activity. How, how do you define this concept? How do you see this concept? Well, the Realtor Party is, is incredibly important to, to practitioners and realtors. Um, because it allows for a commonality of interest to be the focal point. The Realtor Party really looks at everything from the perspective of our members' business, from their day-to-day -day lives, their transactional experiences. And it measures people on the support we get from those elected officers and those regulatory bodies in terms of making the transaction one that works 
to the advantage, not only of, of realtors, but of consumers. Um, and again, those who favor home ownership, those who support um, the necessary changes that allow technologies um, to come into place, those who are supportive of, of the values of the realtor organization, particularly, as I say, focused not just on the general business aspects, that's important as well, but support for, for home ownership, for housing, for real estate practice. And um, we can measure that vote by vote. We can measure it um, in terms of um, regulatory actions uh, to a degree in terms of legal actions. Um, it's not a precise science, um, but it does allow us to take the politics out of it because quite frankly, on different aspects of home ownership versus housing support versus support for consumer disclosures versus general business support, um, the realtors, because of their role in the community and the important activities just around housing, um, span both parties. And in this sense, the realtor party is incredibly important from, from my perspective. And Joel, I think you captured one of the aspects of the realtor organization that is maybe not true, as true of a lot of business organizations, is that we do span um, both political, the political divide in terms of our interests. The country as a whole, um, and even within the state, we, we've seen extreme polarization. And I would say to some extent, we even see that in our membership to some extent. Um, do you think the realtor party concept can help deal with that? Um, so two questions. One, to deal with that polarization, which potentially is manifesting within our membership, and just generally your thoughts about this polarization and, and, and how that impacts us. That's a, that's a really good question, Sanjay. Um, let me start with just the, the polarization that we're finding in, in politics is extreme. Um, and it's, it, it's not something that's brand new for sure. It, it, it's something I've observed over my entire career. I remember when um, you know, the individual legislators would fight like crazy. They'd have ideological differences that were every bit as significant as today's. And after the vote on the floor, they'd go across the street, quite frankly, and and have dinner or have a drink with with the other um, party and and people who opposed them. And there was a collegiality that existed that doesn't exist today. Um, part of that is that um, you know politics in itself has become you know far more combative, and campaigns have become far more personal. And I think as that's occurred, that's kind of laid the foundation uh, for the polarization that we see, not only in California, but, but, but generally. Um, can this improve? Um, I think it can, um, but will it? Um, again, it's a little bit like the housing affordability <laughs> issue. You know, um, there's no question that it can and should improve, um, but there's not a lot of evidence there. And um, I think part of it is also just the, the interests of the parties in, in, in maintaining such distinct identities um, has also, um, you know, played into it a large degree. And in California, where we are effectively a one-party state, it in some ways is even worse um, because um, the tactics that work in states where you really do have competitive politics, where you appeal towards the middle, are tactics that in California are not needed not necessary in most instances. And as a result, uh, competition has been more about the extremes rather than the middle of the voting block. And that 
is really, I think, uh, from my perspective, the biggest difficulty. It's the disappearing middle in California politics that has um, not only you know been part of this polarization, but has made it so very difficult to get the right mix of politics, uh, the right mix of decisions to address affordability or to address the state's um, entire situation as a, as a competitive environment for business as a whole. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to uh, take comfort in the cautious optimism somewhere in there, Joel. <laughs> um, the next topic I, I wanted to talk to you about is CAR's history. CAR and its predecessor entity have been a significant uh, political force in the state, but frankly, not always for good. It has played in its past to the worst impulses of racism and prejudice, such as, as is well known, sponsoring the successful referendum to overturn the Rumford Fair Housing Act and supporting racially restrictive covenants. We are a very different organization today, but there's no denying our history. How do you think we've done as a group grappling with our past? Well, let me first, um, you know, confirm what you just said. Um, the history of organized real estate in California and frankly in the United States is one where some of the most base instincts um, regarding prejudice and race um, were articulated into policies. Uh, we saw that in California with the uh, successful repeal of the Rumford Fair Housing Act. Um, we saw it um, in terms of all sorts of local politics um, that organized real estate um, supported. And um, the results of that linger with us today in terms of home ownership rates and quite frankly, um, economic positioning um, by race that is unacceptable. The gap in home ownership between black and uh, white California families is still almost 30%. That gap is virtually unchanged since the Fair Housing Act in the late 60s. Um, and um, it has consequences for the economy and in particular has huge consequences when you look at the wealth assigned to people on the basis of race. Um, that has to change. And I think the organization has come a long way. Um, I remember when I, that was one of the issues I had quite frankly, when I decided to, to come to Sierra in the late seventies, I was aware of that history um, and quite concerned about it. I talked to uh, you know, a lot of people about it. Our lobbying at that time, our lobbyist, uh, Doug Gillies was one of the people who actually started making major inroads in terms of fair housing. And the National Association of Realtors at that point had already taken a much more positive position on these issues. Um, what I think is the, the, the concern we all have to have is, is what I already mentioned, the gap is not narrowed. And to some degree, I think we have to be, take responsibility for that as well. Um, because our efforts to address that gap, to address fair housing, to try to correct the injustices that, that, that we um, in part created um, have been consistent but not sustained at a high enough level. Um, and although I think there's been huge accomplishments, I commend NAR on what they've been doing, particularly in the last several years, um, CAR has really pushed, as, as you've talked about, Sanjay, and you've been involved in um, some very important legislation through the uh, California legislature. Um, there's more to be done, and it's going to require a continued 
heavy lift and a consistent effort and prioritization around the fair housing, around the housing availability, and around the, the income aspects of that, um, if we're ever going to get to the type of society I think most of us want. It seems like a lot of the fair housing legislation that we've enacted helped to remove the barriers um, to housing, but haven't done much necessarily to remedy those past imbalances. So I guess that would, would you say that's the next step and frankly, the more difficult step that needs to be uh, addressed? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. And I think there's been a lot of discussion about it, um, but not, not enough even. Um, the fact of the matter is once you remove the barriers, you still have this equity and income gap that is so enormous um, that it's unlikely to correct itself, particularly in a society where we've seen um, income grow far less rapidly at the lower quartile or the lower 50% of the population as opposed to the highest uh, you know, 10% of this of society. So it's going to take very deliberate policy steps, in my opinion, um, to correct this situation, to get it to where um, it's even remotely, um, remotely in the, in the realm of where you'd want it, which is uh, relatively speaking, access to homeownership should be available to, to people of all colors, um, relatively equally and of all incomes, quite frankly, having, having adequate housing, having shelter that is, is, is safe and hopefully affordable, that should be our goal. And um, the discussions um, that we're seeing in, in terms of um, reparations um, that are just starting, the commission's got another year and a half to go, as I recall, here in California, um, those are going to have to be taken seriously. They're going to have to be areas where we look outside of the box. Um, CAR has been, I think, recognized. Um, universally, at least in, in the organized real estate circles as, as thinking outside the box. This is an issue that we have to correct for all of our benefits. And um, that's going to take more radical thinking that, as I said earlier, it's going to take a sustained effort. It's going to have to be um, one of the focal points of the organization. And it's gonna require us to rethink some of our policies. Um, otherwise, we're going to find ourselves quite frankly, in the same situation 50 years from now as we do today and as we did 50 years ago with um, inequities that not only disadvantage people of color, but actually disadvantage all of us because they impact the well-being of society and they impact the growth of the state. They impact um, almost everything we do on a daily basis. I don't think we think about that often enough. Yeah, I, th I think what you're saying also ties back to our original discussion about the supply, the lack of housing, because in a way that becomes a fair housing issue, because as we are trying to remedy these, these past inequities, um, the, frankly, just the lack of availability of housing becomes a problem. That's right. And then you can create, if you create housing, you start to, you know, impact the affordability in a positive way and you can direct the way you um, create new housing to start to address different parts of the issue um, in more effective ways. And um, there's no question that if we don't address the housing supply issue, um, it's unlikely and far more difficult to address the equity issues around it. So I, I agree totally with you. Right. So Joel, some big picture questions. How do you see our organization, the California Association of Realtors, uh, evolving in the future? Well, 
California Association of Realtors and California Realtors um, have been amazingly adaptive. I, you know, I'm constantly um, stunned by how this industry adapts so quickly to such ad adverse conditions. And, um, you know, the pandemic was a great example. Um, the industry obviously, you know, was benefited by, by things that we were involved in in terms of making sure that our members could engage in their activity. But um, the ability to adapt and, and the speed in which we adapted um, and the members' ability to connect and get people housing when housing became even more important than it's been in, in recent memories where housing was so central um, that we saw this boom lift that we've seen over the last 18 months um, amazes me. And I expect that's going to continue. But I think it's going to be a, a different environment, frankly. Um, I think this industry is, is going to succeed in a different way at, um, as we look forward. I think it's going to be, quite frankly, probably a smaller group of people selling real estate. Um, it already requires an expertise that makes it difficult for someone who's working part-time or only selling one or two properties a year to, to really do the best possible job of representing uh, their clientele. But it's also been historically an industry of a second or third career. And in part with employment not being that readily available, real estate now, it was a fallback for people. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think increasingly real estate is going to be a, a first career and a career that is um, taken because it, it provides such opportunity, um, not only to obviously make, make a living, but also to do something great. Put someone into a home of their choice, um, create home ownership and all the benefits that it comes. So I, I do think it's going to be a little different. And we're starting to see it now in terms of um, even with this booming market, membership is not growing very much. Um, and I think that's um, a sign of, uh, quite frankly, an early sign as, demogra as demographics uh, dictate that uh, the industry is going to be a bit smaller, but a lot more professional. And Joel, you sort of touched on uh, one aspect, which is the pandemic. Do you see um, long, it's hard to predict, of course, long lasting changes as a result of the, the pandemic we've been going through for the last well, two I, years now? Yeah, I do. And, and first and foremost, and I think this is something that um, we all recognize now, and, and I think recognized early on, the pandemic proved once again, in the most vivid terms, the most uh, meaningful way, how important your home is. Um, when you're confined to it, and um, you're working there and you're no longer um, free to go and, and do everything that, that you thought, um, it's just a great reminder of the value of, of home. And I don't know how else to uh, articulate it, but um, I think that's going to be long lasting. And I, and I think part of the value of home also is that people can better understand and differentiate the advantages of home ownership versus a property where they can't make those changes, where they can't adapt it to their lifestyle, be it the pandemic or be it changes in their family size. So I, I do think the most lasting impact of the pandemic is going to be on, on how valuable housing is. And I think that also is one of the reasons I can be a little bit more optimistic as I was about trying to address these issues. But I also think um, 
you know, the pandemic has as yet, you know, unforeseen consequences, um, but I think they're somewhat predictable. Um, I think for the most part, a lot of industries proved that they can work very, very effectively in a virtual or a remote way. And um, given California, we talked about traffic and its impact on slowing growth and the pain that is involved in the long commutes so many of us have to endure in California. Um, I think you're going to see uh, a, a different model come back. I don't think the norm is necessarily going to be, uh, you know, five days a week, 40 hours in, in, in an office building. I don't think retail is going to go back to, to you know, in-store shopping at the, to the same level it was before. And the consequences of that, I think, are pretty dissimilar for, for retail and um, commercial office space than they might be for residential housing. Um, my suspicion is that more of the uh, overall construction GNP component is going to be housing-based as opposed to, to commercial industrial retail. And um, I think those changes are also going to affect where we live. We're already seeing it, right? With second home communities, the ability to move out of state, the ability to move out of urban California. Um, but it's also gonna be how we live and what housing looks like. And um, I think if those changes are gonna be pretty profound. It's gonna take quite some time for uh, them to settle out and the, the new normal to become um, really understood and appreciated. But I do think this is a, it's more than a one or two year disruption of the, of the long-term trend. This is going to bend the trend lines in a different way. Yeah, and I think we're already, you know, in the Sacramento area where I live, we're already seeing some of that occur with a, with a significant influx of Bay Area residents, many of whom might only need to go into work once a week, if, if even that. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're seeing, we're already seeing that, that, that well, here. and I, I think we're all seeing it in terms of employee expectations, um, employees, um, in many instances, certainly in our instance have proven that they can be equivalently of not more productive working remotely. And, um, and, um, you know, although the, there's lots of reasons that you want to bring people back into the office, at least periodically for collaboration, for onboarding, for all sorts of things. Um, I think employee expectations in a world where employees are going to have more weight than they've had for the last 30 years as demography changes, as there's a scarcity of employees um, relative to the oversupply of employees we've, we've experienced for most of my adult life, um, I think that's going to you know, propel these changes a little further than, than some people think. And um, it's also the bigger picture change, you know, from a manufacturing world um, to a world where, where intellectual property is becoming ever more important. So it'll be, a, I think it'll be a fascinating and interesting. Um, and ultimately, um, I think we should be optimistic about this change. People will have more choice. Um, people may even have a little more time. Think of what, how unique and fun that'll be. Um, but um, I think um, it's, it, it, this change is pretty profound and it's beyond just the, the disruption caused by the pandemic itself. So Joel, a uh, final question. With some people uh, after they leave a job uh, and, or retire, quote unquote, you know, you, you, you kind of have a feeling of what they're going to do. If I were to, if we were to call you for a follow-up podcast a year from now, where are you going to be? What are you going to be doing? I, I don't believe for a moment you're just going to be having a margarita somewhere. 
<laughs> I, I hope I'm going to be in Bali or Tibet or somewhere, but <laughs> that's a little uncertain. Um, you know, I'm not going to disengage. Um, I have a lot of interests. Academia is one of them. Um, I love technology, as you know, and uh, um, I have some, I see some real opportunities in, in, in the real estate sector and others, quite frankly, but I am going to take a period of time to do nothing and, and be with my family and my grandkids. And after that, I'll think it over. But, um, you know, the one thing for sure is it's going to be an incredibly interesting time of, and from my perspective, um, accelerating change. And that change can be bent to a very positive way. And I'm going to want to participate in that in some way. And, and I'm sure I will. All right. Thank you, Joel. It's been a pleasure and uh, also been a pleasure working for you for the last, uh, I think, 14 years. And uh, again, uh, a real pleasure talking to you today. Thanks again for having me, Sanjay. I know the uh, legislative aspect of Sierra is in great hands with you and the team you've built. And thank you very much. Thank everyone for being here. Yeah, thank you. Disclaimer, the purpose of this podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors, CAR, is to provide general and educational information and opinions from a wide range of perspectives regarding politics, voting, elections, legislative issues, and more. The opinions, beliefs, and views expressed by guests or participants of this podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, or views of CAR, its affiliates, their respective directors, officers, or employees. Reference to any individual or entity does not constitute an endorsement, recommendation, or any other position or opinion regarding that entity or individual by CAR. This podcast does not constitute professional advice or services of any kind. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.